Well, as Dorothy said in Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home. And uh, it is, it is uh, great to be back working. I attended a few services as you saw us and we, on, our, on our, what Pete called our sabbatical. It was more of a, kind of a long vacation. I probably worked, I think about 20% of the time. I still had some classes to teach and, and uh, my community group, we continued to, we have a great community group and we didn't wanna forsake that. And uh, we actually gathered them for the first time in a year for a East, pre-Easter breakfast. But uh, we, uh, we uh, then we have MFI and all that takes place in MFI, and uh, they didn't know I was on vacation. But uh, we uh, we had a kind of extended vacation for five weeks, the longest I've probably ever taken, not just in, uh, as a senior pastor of this church, but my whole adult life, probably the longest little vacation I've ever taken. And uh, you know I'm a workaholic. But uh, uh, great time. We... Uh, Spent about three weeks just organizing our personal life. Sue was actually took on a teaching assignment. And the, the teachers don't uh, want to sometimes come and teach, but she'll teach. And uh, they paid her good money for doing that. So I said, go for it. And uh, she, so my wife's been a, a quite the public school teacher here this last year. We, uh, we got to do gardening and we reorganized our life. I got rid of two cars. I bought a new car. You know, just did all those things and shoveled a lot of dirt, probably about... I don't know, six or seven cubic acres, I mean acres, yards, I mean acres. That's a lot of acres and a lot of, a lot of dirt, but yards. But, uh, and then we took a 10-day road trip, got a brand new car, and we just put over 3,000 miles on it, like four or five states, and went to Zion National Park and hiked all over the place, saw a lot of rocks. When your wife's a science teacher, the one thing you do when you take road trips is you go look at rocks. Lots and lots of rocks. So we, we hiked and we biked and we, and we, one of our favorite things we're doing was finding diners to, to go eat at. And there's just some on a road trip finding the local diner that's just got that, you know, that chicken, fried chicken, homemade gravy, you know, kind of a meal with cholesterol instructions on the bottom of the plate and CPR instructions if your heart stops, but... So we, we, we had a great time, and uh, you sound kind of hoarse, Bob, I do, because uh, I was in a church with uh, no mass, and I didn't get COVID, but I got a cold. I haven't had a cold in 14 months, and uh, you start getting around people, things are getting loosened up a little bit, before the first things just start happening, everyone's going to start getting colds, you know, as the germs come flying around. But anyway, we're, we're doing fine. There's no place like, like home. There is no place like home. It's good to be here. And so we're starting today a series on the parables of Jesus, and today we're going to be dealing with the mustard seed. Uh, I'm going to be addressing here, right after I read the text, you know, the importance of the parables, but let's get into our text today about the mustard seed. And uh, our text is uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 to 32. You're going to need to open up Matthew 13 because I'm going to read some passages in there. You may have brought your Bible to church. If you did, you have a thing called a smartphone, download the, you know, the version app, okay, and get, get a Bible scripture thing open here. We're in church. Everyone say church. We're Bible people. Matthew 13, 31 to 32 says this. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven 
is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and he sowed or he planted in his field. Appreciate the, the, the word that Doran brought today and the Lord spoke to us about planting seed. And seed is planted and seed grows even while we sleep. Jesus planted something in the earth. And that's what he planted in the earth is the church. It is the smallest of all seeds. Now I got in this jar... You can't see it. And without my glasses on, I couldn't see it. I was talking to Tamar before I just got up. I said, I can't see the seed. And she goes, it's there. But there's a little seed and there's a little mustard seed in here. You won't be able to see it. You can't even hear it. But there's a seed in here. He says, it's the smallest of all seeds. But notice what it does. But when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Now, if you go, you Google this thing, you're going to find that basically an average mustard seed plant will grow at about five to six and a half feet in, in height. And it'll actually, I didn't get the measurement of how broad it would go. The African mustard seed or the mustard plant will actually grow to be 13 feet with a 20 foot span. Starting with this little thing that you can't see in this jar here, to that interesting parable. Jesus really, as we're going to see, really loved talking about this thing called the mustard seed in a number of different ways. Now, going on here, so that the birds of the air will come and make nests in its branches. And this large thing is so big, even birds love to hang out on its branches. So my, my question today first is this, why teach on the parables? Well, it's pretty simple. We teach on the parables because because Jesus taught. He taught in parables. Now, how many people would like to know Jesus better? How many people would like to understand Jesus better? Have you ever had somebody make assumptions of you, come up and they're kind of describing how they see you or their assumptions of you? And you know what? No one knows the heart, saves the heart that's within them. We, we really do know ourselves somewhat. And they're giving their assumptions of you and, and your personality and what that's like. And you're just thinking, man, they are like way off. I mean, have you ever had that experience? Because they're trying to tell you the type of person you are. That's, that's the farthest thing who I am. I remember one time this lady wanted to sell, uh, had a furniture store and really wanted to bless Sue and, and do an interior decoration on her house. And and she, she figured that Sue was a certain way, and she figured that I was a certain way. She saw Sue as this as wife who just kind of waits on her husband hand and foot. <laughs> and she wanted to create an interior design where it's kind of like my castle. And so she lays out this whole plan for us. It was the farthest thing from what Sue ever wanted. And the farthest thing from whatever I wanted because of the assumption that she made about me and my wife, and especially my wife's personality. She talks very sweet, but that's how far that sweetness goes. <laughs> she loves me, okay? But, you know, you pick up your own clothes, you know. You can do laundry, you can do dishes, you can cook, and you can do this. It's, this, is not a, this is not a family where I'm an inept husband. I do it all, ladies. I do it all, except find things. I can't find anything. 
But they made assumptions. They made assumptions of us in our relationship and designed this house that wouldn't reflect us if, you know, if, if we tried to fit into that. We can make presumptions about Jesus. We can make assumptions about him. But if we're going to, we're going to, if we're going to understand Jesus and come to get to know him better, we got to understand his parables because it's the way that he taught and it's what he taught in those parables that reflect who he is. So that's why we're going to study this thing. Now, let's break this down. What is a parable? Parable, real simple, is a simple story. It's a simple story that illustrates a spiritual truth. That's it. The story and the objects of the story reveal to us spiritual truths. So the question would be then, why did Jesus teach in parables? And that's what we're going to get into here. I'm going to give you eight things here, going really fast, because I haven't preached for a while here. So I got a lot of information. I'm going to go through it fast, and I'm going to end on time. And they're going to think we need to send him away more often. <laughs> Why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, the first is this. They were, they were part of the, uh, I can get this thing moving here. They were part of the rabbinic method of teaching in these days. In the ancient world, parables were a, basically a very popular teaching tool in order to com communicate principles and truths and, and, uh, and revelation, even of God, and even just principles and moralities through, through parables, it was, it was a great method. And, one of the, and it wasn't something that Jesus made up. Well, then all of a sudden, this guy that says he's the Son of God or the Messiah, he kind of teaches us in a different way. It wasn't a new method. It was an ancient method. And it was, and they, I don't know what the actual number is, but we have hundreds of recorded or at least records of parables taught in the first century by rabbis and Jesus. It was a method used in the ancient world to communicate spiritual truth because the truth stuck. The story stuck. Now, statistics and research tells us that you and I remember about 10 to 20% of what we hear. I use this on Sue all the time. I told you that, but I only remember 20%. Only 10 or 20%. It's always funny to me when people come back to me and want to affirm me when I preach. And they'll say stuff to me like, oh, Bob, that was so good. That was, oh, that was so good. What was it that really ministered to you? Oh, it was good. Well, like what? Like when you raised your voice. Okay, well, what was I emphasizing when I raised my voice? Well, it was, oh, it was, I was just good. Or they'll say something to me about that point you made, and I know I didn't make that point. It's not my notes, and I know I didn't just do it spontaneously. I didn't say that. They were mixing it up with something they heard from somebody else. <laughs> we, only, we only remember 10 or 20% of what we hear. But we remember and retain 30 to 40% of what we see and hear. Now, when you tell a story like a parable, the parable has a visualization to it. You start seeing it in your mind. You start seeing somebody planting something or you, you see a little mustard seed. You see it grow into a plant. And there's a concept now that's growing in your head. It sticks. It's a sticky note in your memory. So it's a great tool, especially in an ancient world where they didn't have 
internet and they didn't have ebooks and they didn't have podcasts and they didn't have books okay like you and I have books they have scrolls and it would be like we have five bibles that belong to city harvest church and for you to read it you got to come to this building and you got to read it and you can't take it home with you so you got to memorize it okay you, you understand things have to stick when you speak so that's why they use parables. The second reason why Jesus used parables is they planted seeds of truth. In other words, not only did they put a concept in us that we start seeing that concept throughout the scripture, but sometimes they place a concept that's kind of obscure and it's a seed thing. I want to dig even deeper to try to understand that seed thing in a greater way. And so it creates this stirring of a seeking of knowledge in that particular area the third thing is this they created hunger for more understanding for instance it's very interesting in Matthew 13 36 the disciples came to Jesus and they said this to him explain to us the parables the parable of the weed the weeds in the field in other words when they heard Jesus speak the parable it created within them a hunger to go deeper and to understand more about what he was trying to say parables do that they create a hunger for more the Bible says it's the glory of God to conceal a thing it's the honor of kings to seek it out we want to seek it out fourth is this they were a sign it might be kind of strange to you but very strongly it's in this chapter they were a sign of judgment to keep the unspiritual in the dark now i want to just before i read to you this section i want to bring a truth to you when a heart doesn't respond to god when you're hearing god but you're not obeying god when you're hearing God, you're not listening to God. God will stop speaking to you. When a people stop hearing God, God will stop, stop speaking to them. So the parables, in, 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 in many ways, was a way that God was concealing truth from one group and revealing truth to another group. Because this is what happened in Matthew chapter 13. And uh, verse, verse 10 to 16, if you've got your Bibles now open here, this is old school. And the disciples came and, and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered to you, to his disciples and to the people who are hungry, it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. No, it's the secret, something that's been concealed. But to them, it has not been given. Woo. It's been given to this group, but not given to this group. Remember what Jesus said in the parable of the talents? Take from him who has not and give the talent to him who has. Isn't that kind of confusing? Why would you take from him who has not or has not been faithful to give it to him who has been faithful? Because God reveals himself to the faithful. He reveals himself to the responsive, to the yielded, to the submitted, to the humble, to the hungry. That's who he reveals himself to. Jesus goes on. For the, for the one who has, more will be given, and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I just spoke that to you. This is why I speak to them in parables. Jesus defines this for us. Because seeing they do not see, 
hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. He quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But their hearts are not open, so God's not speaking to them. But blessed are your eyes, they see. Your ears, they hear. And truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In other words, sometimes God conceals things, and it's not that he doesn't reveal it because they've got hard hearts, it's just not his time to reveal it. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Paul said that the things that the prophets spoke that he's revealed in our time, or Peter said that. The prophets were looking at you about the time of his, as it pointed to the suffering of Christ and the glory that would follow. The prophets wanted to see it and they couldn't see it, but we can see it. God revealed it to Paul and Peter and the apostles. And so there was an openness to some that God, Jesus was revealing truths to, and there was concealment to others because God was done speaking to them. Well, that means they kept the, the, the devil in the dark. You know, we kind of give the, the enemy too much credit. Yeah, he knows everything. But, you know, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8, Paul said, if the rulers of this world understood who Jesus was, they would have never crucified them. You could just see Satan, he just thought he had a great day. I mean, Satan doesn't understand all the ways of God. If, it's, if, if the parables are keeping the unspiritual in the dark, wouldn't these parables also keep Satan in the dark? He doesn't know everything. Had they, had they known it was the Lord of glory, they, they wouldn't have crucified him, even if they had an agenda against him. You imagine the enemy partying on Good Friday at the death of Jesus. And you can just see the enemy on Sunday morning. I'll just say it in a very sanctified way. Just looking at Jesus come out of the grave and say, oh, crappeth. Now, I wouldn't say crap, but that'd be kind of vulgar, but crappeth makes it sanctified. <laughs> oh, crappeth. He rose from the dead. There's victory. When you got saved, he's going, oh, it was a bad plan. It was a bad plan killing Jesus because all these people now are being transformed and coming into relationship with God. It was in the dark, kept the enemy in the dark. You know, it's kind of interesting that if you look at Matthew 12 to Matthew 13, in Matthew 12, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub or Satan. Basically, they're accusing Jesus of being a warlock. And from that point on, Jesus only talks in parables. He only talks in parables from that moment on. Wow. It's keeping the enemy in the dark. The parables also revealed the nature of God's kingdoms. In other words, how, how God works or his ways, he brings about his plan. I know a lot of Christians who have a basic knowledge of God, but they're ignorant about the way that God brings about things in your life, in my life, and in his church. His ways. 
the way God works, the nature of his kingdom. They also reveal to us the full spectrum of salvation. Some of the parables are about conversion. Some of the parables are about spiritual growth. Some of the, one of the parables that I'm going to teach you on is about the anointing of God and growing closer in a relationship with God. Some of the parables are eschatological. They're about things about the end times and about how God's going to complete his plan. You see, salvation is not just I receive Jesus, he comes into my life, I get my name written in heaven, and I'm forgiven, and that's it. No, salvation is, is comprehensive. It has a full spectrum. I, I, I'm forgiven. I'm regenerated. I'm being sanctified. On top, top of that, he's building his church, and I'm going to eventually be glorified. I'm going to get a new body. You're going to get a new body. There's going to be a new heaven. There's going to be a new earth. There's going to be a whole new beginning. The whole thing is salvation. If you take a theology book in any doctrine class, and they have the doctrine of the atonement, it will it'll involve what Jesus did on the cross, the substitutionary death, to all of this, even to what you know is eschatology, to the, the doctrine of, the, of ending things. The whole thing is the plan of salvation. This thing's not done until we get a new heaven and a new earth. It's the whole complete thing. The parables speak to that. They're also the fulfillment of prophecy. If you have your Bibles, which I know I asked you to do, turn to Psalm 78. Turn to Psalm 78. Now, when you're looking at Psalm 78 and verse 2 that I'm going to read here, you probably wouldn't look at this as a prophecy, but the Gospel of Matthew does see, see it. It is a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. And here's, I get a little tight, little page won't turn here. Verse 1 says, Give ear, O my peoples, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that, they, that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now, go to Matthew chapter 13, back to that, that chapter that I wanted you to turn to. And as we, we look at Matthew 13, verse 34 to 35, we see this. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet that I just read. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So they interpreted it as the fulfillment of Psalm 78, that Jesus would come speaking in parables. It was the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, when you go and you face the parables, there's three things that when you're reading them, you're looking at them, and I encourage you to do that as we do this series for six weeks. There's a few little things that you should look, make sure you don't go extreme on. One, all parables do not point to the same truth. And so some parables will speak about personal growth, as I said, some about the end times, some about the church, some about the individual. Okay, so there's different, there's different things that the parables would speak to. Two, many times a parable will have one basic truth. There's one theme, there's one thing that Jesus wanted to get across in that parables, which leads to the third thing, is not every detail of a parable has to have meaning. 
I mean, you can overdo just this means this, this means this. And I've seen people that I respect do that where almost every preposition means something and every symbol means something. No, try to find the main thing. Try to find the core. Try to find the heart. Now, when Jesus taught, when he was communicating, the foundational thing behind all the specific subjects that Jesus taught on was the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 4, in uh, verse uh, 30, he said this, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Now, we don't think, when we think of salvation as 20th century North American Gentiles, we don't think about the gospel and the kingdom of God and what Jesus taught the same way a Jew would expect in the first century. Remember, they were looking at the prophet saying there's going to be a Messiah king coming. And this Messiah king is going to come from the family line of King David. And he's going to reestablish Israel. Now, yes, the nations are going to be affected, but they're going to be affected by the nation of Israel. And they're going to be impacted by the nation of Israel. And we're going to reestablish the glory of that kingdom like in the days of David and Solomon before Solomon got wild with women. And that's going to be this. That's what they were expecting. So when Jesus is on the scene and he's saying the kingdom of heaven is now or the kingdom of God is here, they, they were thinking first nationalistically. Second, they were, they were thinking now. Any moment, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, he's healing the sick. Any moment, he's going to blow the shofar. Any moment, he's going to take off the garment and he's going to rise up and we're going to overthrow Rome. Any moment here. Now, when we're reading into that from this point back, we don't see it like that, but that's how they saw it. They saw he's bringing the kingdom. He's going to be like King David. He's going to kick some serious Roman behind. Okay, and this is something that's going to happen now. And it's going to be that which is from effort of man, militarily, power, authority, politics. I'm going to throw that word in. It's going to come with this, this, this movement of Jews that's going to basically reestablish the nation. Jesus brought the same, brought, brought the, the, the principle that he's coming to establish the kingdom of God. But he saw the kingdom as universal. He taught a universal kingdom of all nations ball races he didn't see it as now he saw it as gradual and he didn't see it as the work of military or the work of efforts of men he saw it as the work of the spirit that's how jesus saw the kingdom of god so there's a collision here now in that we just get to our metaphor today jesus loved using the metaphor of the mustard seed for truly i say to you if you have faith if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. Now we do the, we do the second part of that. Mountain move. Does everybody say it? The worship service, mountain move, mountain move. We forget, we forget the mustard seed part. And so what we try to do, we try to metaphysically stir up our faith. I'm going to picture this miracle. I'm going to say it. I'm going to confess it a hundred different ways. I'm going to get believing. Believe, Bob. Believe, Bob. Bob, get yeah, run the mirror. You get believing. You understand? Believe, believe. 
And my faith is going to move that mountain. No, no, no. He says, are you going to like this little tiny faith? You just use that little faith to ask a big God to move that mountain. My little faith moves a big God to move a big mountain. The emphasis is that whatever you got in that faith, in a big God will accomplish that. People say, well, my faith is all wounded and shot up. Okay, but it's not gone. It's not doing good, it's wounded. Well, play hurt. Keep working it. It's not much, I can hardly get it out of my mouth. Well, Hannah couldn't get anything out of her mouth. They thought she was drunk, but it sure moved the hand of God. Moses sometimes just threw a stick. One time he got ticked off. He wasn't even in the spirit. He hit a rock and water still came out. Just what you got, as ugly as it is, exercise it. The Lord said if he had faith like a grain of mustard seed. Same principle. Now, what, is the, what does the mustard seed teach us about God? Here it is. Here's the meat of what I've all been saying today. First, that God uses small beginnings. The church didn't start big. The church started extremely small. They say when Constantine declared what was called the Edict of Milan in 1313 A.D., was the, it was an edict of tolerance towards Christianity. I've seen a pillar in Istanbul that used to be Constantinople that was erected to commemorate that edict. It's still there today. Quit persecuting Christians. That at that time, about 10% of the Roman Empire considered themselves Christian. It started small. That was three, that's almost 250 some years plus, 270 years, 280 years after Jesus. It started small. It didn't have a big beginning. You know, sometimes we start things and they're not, they're not real big. They're kind of small. Small things. But don't give up on those small things. They're going to lead to big things. Pastor was telling me about a church in his denomination one time here in Vancouver. I pastored in Florida. He had a church of 500 people, good solid 500 person church. And that church was that way for 15 years. He was faithful. He built that church. It was 500 people for 15 years. And then one day, it grew to 15,000. It talks about, talks about that God gives us small beginnings. Don't give up on the small beginnings. Just because it's small doesn't mean that God's not working. One of our church plants wasn't getting anybody joining it. They, they went with two, three families, and in a year, all they had was the same three families. One family was considered joining them. They might have added a fourth. They were discouraged. I flew into Spokane, and the Lord spoke to me. Tell them, fear not, little flock. It's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. They're a thriving church today. Okay, wait, little seed. Little seed, small beginnings. The other thing is God uses the little things that we give him. God, I don't have much, but I got a lot of heart. I'll take that. God, I don't have much. I got five loaves and two fish. I'll take that. 
God, I don't have much. I have a, a little flour and a little oil at the bottom of the jar. I'll take that. God, I don't have much. I just have a desert stick. I'll take that. What little we got, God, will take that. And if we have our little faith with that, he'll do something big with it. Mustard seed teaches us that God turns hopeless situations and turns them into his glory. Come on. We were down to our last dime. We were in divorce court. That actually happened in Brazil. Skip and Debbie Rodert's church down there. I was down there. It was at a couple that I had prophesied years before in another church in Brazil. And they were part of that church plant team. And they said, you prophesied over us that we would have a family ministry years ago. We were in divorce before a divorce court judge getting ready. The gavel's ready to go down and say, marriage over. And then the wife, she pulls out the prophecy manuscript. She says, we can't do this because this is the word of the Lord. And they decided right before the gavel went down to say, no, we're not going to disobey God. We're going to make this work. Seed says God will take hopeless situations and will turn it into his glory. They're a solid couple today and they're thriving. It means that God works in opposite ways that we think. If you give yourself away, you'll find life. If you die, you'll live. If you give, you'll increase. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you're last, you'll become first. Ooh, wow. The seed. It's the opposite of what we think. Give this as a gift to somebody. Hey, have a jar. So thanks for the jar. I really appreciate this birthday gift. No, there's a seed in there. There's a seed in there. Now, the truth of this parable is this. I blabbed a long time ago. Bring it home. The church is planted by God. I want you to know that he planted the church in the earth. The church is his idea. It's his concepts, not man's. Yes, it's full of holes and got its issues, especially the last 14 months, a lot of issues. But it's still his church. You know, one of the people that had left here because they disagreed the way we kind of handled the COVID situation, I, here on our vacation, I was praying one morning, and I just said, you know, Lord, I just need, I don't think I'm bitter. I think. But I just, just in case I am, I, I forgive them. They had a right to leave and disagree with me and all that. Just, if there's just anything in me, I just forgive. I went after that, I opened my emails, and there was a letter from one of those people. One of the first people who had left and just said, you know, I still got your picture and Sue's picture on a refrigerator. We love you guys. And, you know, I'm sorry, kind of the way it happened. And I said, you know, you're my friend. I appreciate such a kind letter. Let's, let's get together for coffee. Come by the office. We'll have coffee together. Talk. Come on. Come on. Church is planted by God. He's still working. The church will have a small beginning. Come on, they had no army when they started. They had no government backing them up. They had no money. They had no press or communication networks to market. They had no talent and they had no numbers. 
and they were considered a cult in the midst of a cult. That's how the church started. Mustard seed. Means the church will grow throughout time. Now it's interesting with mustard seed, not only does it grow big and broaden out, but its seeds go, go blown out and its seeds just multiply mustard seed plants all over the place. Come on, throughout the earth, the church has grown. Nations. Come on, I've seen Afghan converts, Tajik converts. I've seen, I've seen converts in, in nations around the earth. It's not, there's not supposed to be any Christians at all. Come on, the seed spreads. The seed spreads. They say one of the fastest growing uh, populations of new Christians in the world is in the country of Iran. You'll never hear about it on the news. They're being saved by the thousands. But here's one that I think that we need to understand, is the church will never be impressive. When Jesus used an object to describe the church, he has a mustard seed and a bush. You know, he didn't say the church will, he planted, a man planted a cedar tree, a sequoia pine, a redwood, you know, tree from Northern California. He didn't, one of these things you could drive your car through. He, he planted a seed that was going to grow into a bush. You know, the Lord's just telling us, we got to forget about trying to be impressive to the world. You know, the world's never going to be impressed with you. Never gonna be, well, we can be cool and hip and relevant and sing the right songs and dress the right dress and... You know, just be there. But you know, here's the issue. All we are at the end of the day is a bush. There never can be a So let's just forget about being impressed, impressive. Let's live with the reality of just being despised, criticized, judged a little bit, misunderstood, weird. Here's one for you. Foolish. We got to get back to being fools for Jesus. Not that we should be obnoxious, not that we should egg that on, we should in any way. But at the end of the day, Jesus is not going to be popular. I've been written up in the Colombian because I, I opened up a, a town hall meeting with Jamie Herrera and I prayed. I said, God, may you bless everybody in here from different views and may we be a great family to listen to each other. And I said this horrible thing at the end. In what? In Jesus' name. I got written up in the Colombian. Someone came here to church to confront me because of the name of Jesus. Hey, listen, all we are is a bush on our best day. God moves mighty by his spirit. We think a revival is going to come. Let's just say 10 million people got saved. Yeah, but there's still another 175 million or 200 million that didn't. And they got, and what we think is they're supposed to think like us. They're not going to think like us. So let's get, you know, let's get ourselves out of this irritation and just be followers of Jesus and just let it happen. Let's stand to our feet.